Voting rights compromise. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. It does appear now that Democrats in Congress, both progressives and centrists, have coalesced around some sort of voting rights bill that essentially gets rid of some of the more contentious elements from the original bill, including restructuring the Federal Election Commission. Instead, the focus will now be largely on simply making sure there is ballot access. Let's get reaction to this. Tiffany Miller, Muller, I'm sorry, Tiffany Muller is president of the anti corruption group. And Citizens United. Tiffany, thanks for joining us. What's your reaction to this compromise that seems to be emerging? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on today. And we're really thrilled about this bill. I mean, it does all of the major things that we need to address to help protect our democracy. So it makes sure that everyone's freedom to vote is protected and that no matter where you live, no matter who you are, you can access the ballot box. Number two, it ends partisan gerrymandering. So that voters are choosing their elected officials and not the other way around. And it ends dark money in politics so that billionaires can no longer buy our elections. So we know we are very happy about this compromise. We're happy that we have a unanimous support among the Senate Democrats and we're ready to get this bill passed. Some of the items include 15 days of consecutive voting, ensuring that all voters can request to vote by mail, establish some new uh, automatic voter registration and have election day become a national holiday of these, which in your estimation is the toughest sell for critics of voting rights legislation. Well, none of these should be a tough sell. These are all common sense solutions that have broad support among the American people. Democrats, Republicans, independents all support these, uh, these issues and have seen them implemented in states from Utah to Arizona to Colorado and West Virginia, since we're I'm sure gonna talk about that, the Senator Manchin helped lead this compromise. So this has broad bipartisan support across the country. And all it does is make it easier to vote and protect the freedom to the ballot box. Now, what's not in it, as we said, restructuring the Federal Election Commission. What is it that needs to be restructured about the Federal Election Commission? And if you don't do that, how big a setback is it? Well, look, right now the Federal Election Commission is it has a six person commission that too often ties along party lines, a 3-3 deadlock that doesn't allow anything to be done. So even in blatant cases where it is clear that someone's violated the law, that law isn't being enforced. So while the restructuring the commission from six commissioners down to five, which is something that we really wanted to see, is no longer in this bill. What is in this bill is actually increasing the authority of the general counsel and making sure that we are actually giving the Federal Elections Commission more authority to enforce the law as it's written. You mentioned West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, a centrist by most accounts and something of a thorn in the side to the Biden administration and certainly a lot of progressives on countless issues. How significant is his support for this compromise and were you surprised by it? Well, Senator Manchin's a former Secretary of State and former governor who has long cared about these issues. And he actually helped lead the efforts to find this compromise over the August recess. So what it shows is that again, from Democrats to Republicans to independents, these are common sense solutions and that we can find unanimous support among Democrats. Right now the problem is the Republican obstruction that we're seeing in the Republican caucus from Senator Mitch McConnell and his allies. So we need to make sure that we do whatever it takes to get this bill passed so that we can stop the attacks that we're seeing across the country on our democracy. 
And to be clear, will it require 60 votes simply to bring up a vote because of how this bill is structured? In other words, you'll need nine Republicans? Well, currently that is that is where we're at. Is that it would require sixty votes to overcome uh, the uh, to overcome a filibuster, and we have seen Republicans already filibuster uh, these bills twice, right? Uh, and actually have no one in the Republican caucus support it. Uh, but here's the thing. The filibuster has been reformed many times throughout the years, including for things like being able to pass corporate tax cuts that the Republicans passed a few years ago, or executive nominations or Supreme Court justices. Surely, if it only takes a simple majority of the Senate to give away $2 trillion in tax cuts to corporations and the wealthiest individuals in America, Surely we can make it to where it only takes a simple majority to protect the foundations of our democracy. So it sounds like you're saying that if Democrats cannot get the nine Republicans to come along and they can't break the 60 vote threshold and there is a filibuster, that it sounds like you're suggesting that at that point, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, all the other Democrats need to go along with a with a filibuster a carve out essentially eliminating the filibuster for this particular legislation. Senator Manchin himself has said that inaction is not an option. Um, and what we're seeing across the country right now shows how urgent this issue really is. So there's been 400 bills introduced in state legislatures that would uh, roll back voting rights. We're seeing uh, gerrymandered maps coming out every week right now uh, that would that would just take Republicans and put them more in the majority. And so we know that the filibuster has been changed and has used exceptions 160 times in the last 20 years. And so we know that we can carve out an exception and make sure that we can figure out a way to get this bill passed. It is that important. We have to do it. Tiffany, some Americans, of course, may be very familiar with some of the state rollbacks, particularly, for example, not allowing you to bring water or refreshments to somebody who's waiting in a lengthy voting line. Is there anything in this federal legislation that would address that? It does, actually. The Freedom to Vote Act says that you cannot criminalize taking food or water to people who are waiting in line. Look, it is voter suppression particularly aimed at black and brown communities that has created those long lines in so many places throughout the country. Where we see 12 hour lines of people in Atlanta, Georgia waiting to vote. And the fact that what they have now tried to do is make waiting in that line even more uncomfortable or even dangerous for people waiting in that line shows that the cruelty really is the point. So this bill actually would make sure that no states can criminalize handing out food or water to people who are waiting in line. And given the clashes between some of these state laws and this federal legislation, if it passes, any fears in terms of the court battle that would ensue, given that the Constitution does seem to give a lot of power to states in terms of how they conduct their elections? But the courts have found throughout the years that Congress has the right to set standards for federal elections. And that is what this does. This puts national standards in place so that whether you live in Maine or West Virginia or Arizona or wherever you live, whoever you are, whatever race you are, you are allowed to have equal access to the ballot box. That's what this is about. It really is that common sense. It's making sure that we're giving the power back to the people and that their voices and their votes are heard.
Tiffany, would you be open to having this legislation open to Republican amendments? And the reason being, of course, is that some Republicans say, hey, they have some ideas on how to crack down on what they see as potential fraud, making it perhaps some putting more of a burden on people to prove who they say they are. Is that the sort of thing that you think should be welcome in this legislation? Look, I think that uh, that first of all, there have already been Republican amendments incorporated and Republican ideas incorporated into this bill. During the markup in the um, Senate Rules Committee, there were I think nine different Republican amendments that were actually incorporated into this bill. Um, but here's the other thing we're seeing. We're not seeing Republicans come to the table to negotiate in good faith. We're seeing an all out partisan attack on the right to vote and on redistricting across the country, all being fueled by dark money special interests. And it's all about who gets to vote and how Republicans right now think that they are gonna win elections. We saw that same dark money and these same special interests fuel the big lie prior to the 2020 election and lead to the January 6th insurrection. So it, this is not Republicans coming to the table in good faith to negotiate this. This is an all out attack on our democracy by one party. And Democrats must stand up and act and pass this bill to protect it. And the strategy behind that attack now, and we saw before the California recall was to claim fraud even before the election has happened. Would it help Democrats and the American people to provide some measures in this legislation that provides for more transparency, even more transparency in terms of the tabulation and how tabulation systems are conducted so that people who don't understand the system or worry, okay, I wanna make sure these votes are being counted the right way that they get some satisfaction, some confidence in this as well. There are some really great election security measures in this bill. Everything from actual real audits to making sure that we have paper ballots so that voters can verify how they voted and that their vote is gonna count the right way. To cybersecurity, because we've obviously seen foreign governments and foreign actors trying to influence our elections. So election security is a very real threat. You know what else this bill does? It also cracks down on the online misinformation and disinformation that right now Republicans are specializing in and that we have to crack down on in order to restore faith and trust in our government. Tiffany, real quickly in the final seconds we have you, are you very optimistic that this will get through? I actually am really optimistic that we're gonna be able to get this done. And for any of your viewers who wanna get involved and raise their voices, you can go to actforthepeople.com actforthepeople.com and you can get connected to your senators and tell them to pass this bill. Tiffany Muller, she's the president of the anti-corruption group and Citizens United. Tiffany, thanks for joining us and explaining some of this to us and good luck to you and your organization as this legislation winds its way through Congress. Thank you. Thank you so much. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. By now, most of us, most of you have already heard about ivermectin. It's that horse deworming drug that a lot of personalities in Fox News have been pushing to people in terms of treatment of COVID 19. Um, but there are some problems with this, never mind that it's for horses. And there's also a story in all this that seems to have been missed. So here to talk about all of this is Angelo Carosone, who's the president and CEO of Media Matters. Uh, Angelo, before we get to, to the YouTube issue and all this, I wanna ask you, what's been your reaction to seeing Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram and the rest pushing ivermectin? I mean, it basically is like, it, it's exactly what I would have expected, which is that they'll do absolutely anything. To, to convince their audiences that COVID is not that big of a deal, 
that there's some kind of grand conspiracy to exploit COVID in order for liberals and the media and Democrats to exert control over them. And that therefore they should, you know, uh, ignore the public health responses and instead turn to all these fads or these cures or, or nothing at all. And so I think it's part of the course. I'm pretty confident that Tucker Carlson is not shooting himself full of ivermectin and neither is Laura Ingram and that they're very comfortable being vaccinated. Uh, and so it's expected, you know, I mean, they were canceling birthday parties and events at the same time that they were telling people to book cruises last year, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic start. And this is basically just to me, a continuation of the trend that they've been doing the whole way. Getting their yeah, the impact right? of Fox News yeah. is that apparently at some uh, livestock feed stores, there's been a run on ivermectin because that's in this, this sort of uh, this horse dewormer, although the uh, the amount of ivermectin in that is extremely concentrated and far more dangerous than safe in ivermectin given to you in a dosage you would get from a doctor, even though most doctors would tell you it just doesn't do anything. But in yeah. any case, Angela, you pointed out uh, Media Matters has found that, I mean, YouTube still has a lot of videos about ivermectin up there. How come? That's the question. I mean, I think that to me, one of the biggest flashpoints is it wasn't that long ago that they were patting themselves on the back because they took down a video uh, from Ron Johnson that was promoting the use of the drug or sort of giving some misinformation about it. They were very, they were using that as an example of how they consistently enforce their policies and to, as a illustration of how effective they've been. But in reality, if you just do a really basic search and then you start to dig in a little bit, what you'll find is tons of videos um, that not just promote ivermectin as a cure and a way to treat COVID, but to actually take it prophylactically uh, to, to get ahead of it because it can actually make you immune to COVID. And then the third thing is a whole range of videos about how ivermectin is safer to use than say the common shampoos that you would use uh, if you had say head lice, for instance, that it's such a common thing. Um, and so it's an avalanche of misinformation. COVID, uh, YouTube has not enforced any of the rules against these videos in large part because they're pretty well-established networks. Um, and when you take them down, they get critiqued. And they also lose views and engagement. And they're they're you know having a big battle with TikTok right now, and they don't want to lose any more minutes on uh, spent on YouTube. That's that's the dirty secret. How has YouTube responded to the criticism? The one thing about YouTube in comparison to others is that they're the worst. You know, at least Facebook uh, will performatively start to engage with some of the content that they say is against their own rules. They may enforce it against you know, a fraction, even a substantial fraction of the videos that researchers or third parties bring to their attention. And in some cases, they've been pretty good about being proactive about it. Uh, YouTube, on the other hand, basically ignores it. Uh, they may take down one. So if you give them 15 or 20 videos that have had several hundred thousand, in some cases, millions of views, uh, they may remove one that is disconnected from, say, uh, an account that has a really large subscription base. So maybe it was a video that got randomly posted from one of those burner accounts that then gets, you know, who cares if it gets taken down, right? Because you're not losing subscribers or anything and people clone them. Uh, so that's what they'll do. They, they took down one video uh, that was disconnected from a larger account, but for the most part, they've left up all the others. And that I think is, you know, these videos are, some of them are pretty compelling in the sense that they masquerade as medical experts or, you know, people that have public health backgrounds. And in fact, they're not actually doctors at all, uh, but they, you know, they may have a PhD in, uh, you know, in literature, and but they use that that doctor moniker, or they may be chiropractors, but they'll sort of you know they'll present it as if they're giving scientific research. So they're giving it the color and credibility of you know someone in the medical field actually promoting these the, the use of this drug. 
I wonder if there's any room for nuance with YouTube. And here's why, I was talking to a pulmonologist um, the other day about ivermectin and he said, look, if ivermectin is prescribed in the normal medical fashion, in other words, by a doctor, it doesn't do anything for you in terms of COVID treatment, COVID or protecting, but it doesn't do any harm. The harm comes yep. if you're taking it in the horse paste or in the dosages, the concentrated dosages you would get for livestock. So is it possible for YouTube to draw that distinction and say, okay, if somebody wants to put a video up about a drug that is really not doing anything, so be it. It's where they start prescribing or recommending people take a livestock feed. That's where we should draw the line. Yeah, I think that'd be totally fair. I think if we were gonna criticize YouTube for allowing you know, anyone to really talk about the drug, especially how it's prescribed, I think that would be kind of irrational of us, right? Um, uh, and, and unfairly reactionary. But if you're out there, one, not drawing a distinction at all uh, and not even flagging that there's a difference, which is an important thing for most people to know. If you're, if you're watching a YouTube explainer about the use of ivermectin in COVID and you never once mentioned that the ivermectin you see at your local shelf is not the ivermectin that a doctor would give, say somebody that was being treated for correctly, that's a pretty big uh, piece of information that you'd wanna know, especially since they're spelled the same, there's no special way to know the difference. The other thing is a lot of this content will also give people their own personal uh, way of taking these off the shelf drugs for farm animals and how you can dose yourself uh, to get say a human sized dose of it for, uh, for COVID treatment. And that's where it actually starts to get much more explicit and dangerous, right? Because you're telling people how to use something that is clearly not for that. And and I think most most of the content is the, is the latter. It's it's not, you know, somebody just talking about about the drug generically. I think that would be okay. I've always liked to tell friends and sort of joke around, but there's an element of seriousness to it that with Media Matters, you guys watch Fox News, so the rest of us don't have to. Is there something to be said about simply saying, okay, let you two put whatever they want and leave it to organizations like yours or to medical science organizations to do the critiques of these videos and not go down the road of trying to decide what is misinformation and what is not? Yes, I think there's definitely something to that. And by and large, that would, that would be an acceptable thing. I think the important thing to consider here is when the platforms start to draw and enforce these actions. To me, the bigger question becomes, okay, you've now set a policy, how are you enforcing it? And we just found out this week, right, that Facebook has a secret list uh, and for years was using internally of influencers that they considered to be um, above or accepted from enforcing any of their terms of service against. Most of those influencers are right-wingers, right? They don't give the same benefit to left-leaning influencers or others, right? It was predominantly right-wing influencers. So when you set a policy and then you don't start to enforce that policy consistency, I think that's where, say, a research organization like Media Matter should start to ring the bell. Because that's an alarm bell. What it means is that one, that means there's probably almost always is their larger discrepancy in their enforcement. And it also shows that they're spinning some 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 BS, right? Some PR speak. And to me, the the part that elicited this research followed them going out there and taking down one ivermectin video and saying, here's our bright line. When in fact, you'll give us all the credit, we're doing our part, now leave us alone. And in fact, what it turned out to be the case. Was was PR relations more than say you know an actual consistent policy and and that matters to me. I'd rather even if they don't take it down, there's all kinds of things that you can do in terms of how the algorithm weights it, how you're recommending the videos. That's really worries me is when they start to recommend that kind of content to individuals that may be susceptible to it. 
Um, so uh, I'm sensitive to the free speech questions and also like the market. I think it's okay to have these fights, but I also think it's important for us to, to hold individuals and these platforms to account when they want credit for something that they're not actually doing. And then separately, to really make it clear that I think the bigger threat about these videos being on the platform isn't just that they're there, it's that the entire power of YouTube, YouTube's recommendation engine is actually helping connect that specific content with people really susceptible to it. Well, to me, and that's 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 a great point because never mind the hypocrisy at YouTube and Facebook over their different uh, sort of ways of their different uh, standards. But a lot of people don't realize that the, there are algorithms that these organizations have in terms of what videos they push, which videos they promote. Is it your sense that the algorithms are shifting now towards favoring conservative videos and criticizing or or demonetizing or withdrawing democratic videos? And what's what's the reason that a Facebook or YouTube would go in that direction? It's interesting. We started to see this trend. You know, there was this, there's there's always been a sense of it, but we started to find evidence of this trend leading up to the election. In fact, in the months before uh, before election day, we did an analysis of the top 100 videos just about voting on YouTube. And not only were the majority of those videos uh, from right leaning platforms, even though left leaning videos were producing content, they just weren't getting the same reach and engagement. There was about half of the right-leaning videos contained explicit misinformation about voting that violated YouTube's terms of service. And that alone should mean that it shouldn't be in the top 100 or top 10. Um, and so I think it really gets back to what I was referencing earlier, which is, are you enforcing these policies consistency against left and right? And ultimately, at the end of the day, a lot of this is about that the right works, the refs, they scream and yell a lot louder. And this is something we saw in newsrooms in the 90s. And I think we're seeing this sort of the same kind of duck and cover and inoculating yourself against right-wing blowback at these platforms. Uh, and I think that's a, honestly a really big part of it. Yeah, and it is a very important for people to remember that the working the refs, it isn't just a television and cable news and, and traditional newsrooms. There is a lot of point of contact now between Facebook, YouTube, and all these political organizations as well. So Angelo Carasone, he's the president and CEO of Media Matters. Angelo, thanks so much for doing this, we appreciate it. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.